Cognitives Podcast, everybody. Kaylee Fretz, it is Monday, May 30th. The Giro d'Italia wrapped up just about 24 hours ago. We're going to talk all about it, plus some Ride London stuff, some hat tricks over in the women's peloton. We're going to talk about whether we should feel sorry for, for Richard Carapaz and Ineos in general. Do we feel bad for them? Do we feel bad for them? We'll talk about it in a little bit. Talk about Vanderpool becoming a meme, which he successfully did over the course of the last three weeks. Relegation points. And if we have time, a little nerd nugget for you. We're going to decide at the end of the show whether, whether we actually have time for that. Because we got a lot to talk about today. Hello, everybody. Kit, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Yes, good to be back. I appreciated that our listeners out there, I assume this is what happened. Our listeners out there, after we gave you a little intro last week, were suddenly very complimentary in your on your on your pieces over the weekend, commenting on your pieces about your excellent use of the English language, your clarity, <laughs> your yeah. insight. I would it, assume that was podcast listeners, but I'm not really sure. It also, uh, yeah, got a lot of chat in the Velo Club Slack, uh, Velo Club forums as well over the weekend, which was nice. Yeah, that's the power of the podcast. It's nice to be in people's ears, I think. So hello to all of you out there for whom we are in your ears at the moment. Ronan, how are you? I'm good, yeah. I, I'm discharged, actually. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yay. You got your, your, well, your thing's been off for a while, but you're like, you're like free to go yep. for a jog, go for a bike ride, whatever you want to do. Yep. The surgeon told me this morning that he didn't need to see me again. And I told him nothing personal, but I hope to never see you again also. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations. How, how are you celebrating? Uh, with a recovery day, because what he doesn't know is that I've spent 30 hours on Zwift in the last three weeks. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> so you've been riding more than me, and I have not had a broken leg. That's mm. that's a little bit depressing. Yeah, 10 hours a week on Zwift. Uh, I think I'm silly. exaggerating slightly. It's slightly more than three weeks, but it is close to 30 hours, and it's only slightly more than three weeks. Wow. But you can go outside now. I can go outside now, yeah. That's, that's, that's the big takeaway from, from this news. Well, I was going to put Amy last, but she just said something, and people must know who's who the disembodied voice came from. <laughs> Amy Jones, how are you? I'm good, thanks. I'm here to claim my prize. Where is it? <laughs> <laughs> We're going to get to that. Okay. We, somewhat questionable claiming of the prize, but we will get to that in a what? little bit. And Johnny Long, welcome back. Good afternoon. <laughs> I thought I would counteract amy's vibe with just keeping it <laughs> short sweet and why do you need to counteract my vibe what's wrong with bat, it? for bat, for journalistic balance i it's not like sit full of coffee there right as you were responding hoping that you would say more than two words and then i ran out of time <laughs> uh, i didn't sip my coffee i was watching you kaylee and uh i threw that <laughs> hospital pass <laughs> well let's get into today's show but before we do Got to hear from our good friends over at Whoop. Johnny? Yes, I'll save my breath uh, to tell you that today's episode is brought to you by Whoop. Throughout the Giro d'Italia, Whoop is partnering with EF Pro Cycling and Velon to give cycling fans a behind-the-scenes look at what riders' live heart rates are during the race, along with everything off the bike, including recovery, training, and sleep data over the course of a Grand Tour. Whoop isn't just for professionals, though, as Kaylee and Ronan showed us. Well, actually, Ronan was a professional, basically. But whether you're an avid cyclist or just getting started, (laughs) 
Whoop is there to help you understand your body better. It's not just another fitness tracker. Whoop measures loads of data and provides you with personalized recommendations and feedback so that you can accomplish your goals. One sentence or two of personal testimonial here if applicable, so I will hand that over to <laughs> uh, Kaylee and Ronan because because they both love Whoop. <laughs> I just I opened up the Whoop app on my phone just now and I'm I am 90% recovered from my my attempt at the Iron Horse on Saturday, which is a super fun ride here in Durango, Colorado, where I where I live. Durango to Silverton, race the train. Goes over 10,000 feet. Was that 3,200 meters, whatever it is, 3,300 meters, twice and gains about 2,000 meters over the course of 50 miles. I like to just mix my imperial and metric as much as possible. Uh, in fact, I did so on my Instagram story over the weekend and a whole bunch of people messaged me to be like, where on earth do you live? I just, I'm a man of the world. I'm a global citizen. I <laughs> use, all, use all, of the, all of the units. Anyway, whoop. Tells me that I'm recovered and ready for my mountain bike race later today. Um, On a Monday. That's uh, interesting. Well, today's Memorial Day in the U.S. Technically, I'm not working today. Yeah. I'm I'm working during this podcast and then I'm going back to not working right afterward. Uh, But we'll see. We'll see. I'm not sure I trust it today, to be perfectly honest. Uh, I feel a little sore still from Saturday. But hey, it says my heart is recovered. So at least I'll be able to ride hard, even if it's painful. It, it's funny you're supposed to be not working today because Whoop is telling me that I, my body is just not working as a as a whole. <laughs> in, in the week or so that I've been using it, it takes about four days to get set up, but in the week or so that I've been using it, I think the highest recovery score I have seen is about 60%. And that kind of confirms a lot of suspicions I've had about myself for the past 10 years and that if you cycle a lot, sleep very little, and drink somewhat frequently... Yeah, it doesn't make for a good combination so uh right now i'm sitting at 51 percent recovered uh, and that's after seven hours and 10 minutes of sleep last night which yeah uh, i'm not sure i want to know these stats to be honest i got seven hours and 53 minutes of sleep last night i'm 90 percent recovered but also i did no beer last night because i knew and the whoop was yelling at me don't have a beer go to bed early and I wanted to, to not get lapped today. <laughs> that was really the, the primary goal. It, it just reminds me to not be an idiot. We could all use that. Okay, well, you can get 15% off at whoop.com, W-H-O-O-P.com, and enter the code TIPS, T-I-P-S, um, to get 15% off. Thank you to Whoop for sponsoring today's episode and the last couple episodes, and I think probably some more episodes coming up is what I hear. So thank you to Whoop. We appreciate you. Let's get into the Giro. I always like to take a little glance over at my recorder to see how far into the episode we have gotten without doing anything yet. Uh, and today, eight minutes and fifty-five seconds. Congratulations, team! <laughs> let's get into <laughs> let's get into the Giro d'Italia. Uh, an Australian winner. We we probably should have had someone from Australia show up on this episode. However, when we record it, it is. Uh, about one o'clock in the morning <laughs> in Australia. So that didn't happen. I should say for longtime listeners of the podcast, I am catching up with none other than Rupert Guinness at the end of this week. He is coming through Colorado because he's doing a little bit of altitude training ahead of a run at the race across America, which starts in a couple weeks here. So I am catching up with Rupe on Friday, I believe. 
uh, we're actually we're loaning uh, one of his sort of uh, one of his domestiques, one of his uh, swaniers, I should say, loaning her a bike for the week. Uh, I think she gets a cold Nago that James has been testing. So lucky her. Anyway, I'm going to be making a podcast with Rupert later this week for those who remember and love the old Tour de France pods with Rupert Guinness. He will be back sometime in the next week or so. And we're going to talk all about Race Across America and I am sure the first Australian winner of the Giro d'Italia. So I think first and foremost, uh, Amy, you came the closest to picking this. We all thought you were crazy. None of us, none of us in this podcast, on this podcast, thought that Jai Henley was going to win this bicycle race. And yet, and yet he did. Can we just insert the audio from that clip of the podcast where I was like, guys, are we just writing off Jai Hindley? And everyone was like, well, it was a soft Giro when he came second. And I was like, okay, I mean, I don't know that much about men's racing, but here we are. Let's talk about how he did it, though. Uh, I mean, it was in <clears throat> it was in pretty impressive fashion. I mean, it really, Bora played it perfectly. Bora played it really aggressively. They played it very in a very different way to Ineos, I think. And so not only did they get a, a pink jersey out of it, but they got stage wins and and they just got, I don't know, a mo- most aggressive prize really for, for me, as opposed to Ineos who kind of walks away from this Giro with nothing. I mean, second place at a, at a Grand Tour is nothing to scoff at, except for the fact that people rarely remember who didn't win five or 10 years from now. Uh, Thankfully, Carapaz has his Giro victory already, but Ineos walks away with very little to show for their efforts, despite, you know, attempts to kind of grab the race and control it as best they could uh, in opposition to the Bora tactic, which was kind of utilize that Ineos methodology, sprinkle in a little bit of chaos. And then on the one climb that really mattered, the last climb of the day on the last mountain stage on Saturday, Di Hindley dropped Richard Carapaz, and here we are. Yeah, it was pretty spectacular. And like you say, it was perfectly done. And just the way that Di Hindley attacked as soon as the last Ineos man was done on the back of that uh, Ineos train. And he knew that Leonard Kamner was only a few hundred metres up the road. It was just exemplary. It was like textbook. I mean, we said that a lot this year, but it was so, yeah, it was very... I don't know, powerful in a way, <laughs> literally and figuratively. And then the moment when he dropped Carapaz, the guy who lives in altitude um, and kept going, it was great. I, I will take a little bit of credit, much like Amy is, uh, not not quite as much, but a bit in that on Friday's episode, you know, we, we had mentioned how sort of cool and calm that Handley was playing it. And, you know, I was very much of the impression watching the race that he was Rather than trying to attack at every moment, he might possibly open an advantage over Carabas. He was waiting for the one moment he knew for sure that he would. And that's exactly what happened on, on Saturday. You know, when he went uh, and made that attack on the final climb, he didn't once look back. He didn't once check where Carapaz was. He just, you know, he kept going. And, you know, it was, I, um, I think back to that, you know, that one time that I beat Jai Hindley in a race. <clears throat> <clears throat> <clears throat> <clears throat> uh, <laughs> but uh, Wait, did this it, actually happen? <laughs> this actually happened, yes. He was 39th, 39th on stage two of the Ampost Ross, and I was 33rd. So, I, you know, I was going to say a one to one, but neither of us won. What's more important is that I beat him. 
But the it, it was it was the Ampost Ross in 2016, and I was on the Irish national team, and Hindley was on the Australian national team, and the Australian national team were by far and away the strongest team in the race. They didn't win the race, but we had any Dunbar on the Irish team, and the thing we were trying to you know communicate to Eddie all week was you know wait until you know rather than attacking as as often as you can, wait until the moment is right. And I think now in hindsight, perhaps Jai was listening through the wall with a glass up to the, <laughs> a glass up to his ear because that was you know basically everything we talked about for that week was was what Henley uh, Henley did last week. But I think if we go back to Ineos for a second and you know back to actually taking this seriously for a second, um, you got a question there. Their tactic on Saturday because you know Carapaz surely he couldn't have been feeling great right up until the second that uh, Henley dropped him. He, he must have had some sense that his legs were not as as strong as they were previously. But it was Anios that set up, you know, almost set up Henley's attack. You know, had had they looked to to Bora to do the the pacing, Bora couldn't have set a pace that high that would have put Carapaz in that sort of difficulty. So that when Hindley launched his attack, that he did get tailed off. You know, it's it's small differences like that that actually might have been the difference between Hindley successfully dropping Carapaz and not. And you got to think that Enios's fierce tempo, which was you know exploding the GC race, the top ten was all over the road, had to have some impact on Carapaz himself getting dropped. So the Enios train is to blame again. He's also missing Richie Port. I mean, absolutely mm. missing Richie Port. I think. Um, but it kind of comes back to what we were talking about really early in this Giro where, you know, we were joking about, oh, no, the, the, the sky train is back. Uh, woe is us. Uh, Johnny, I think you wrote a, a funny story about it. But then I think I mentioned this on the podcast when like Brian Nygaard tweeted at me and was like, what are you actually worried about? They weren't they didn't do it like they weren't successful. This is right after the Etna stage. And that turned out to kind of. Well, kind of define the whole race in that Ineos attempted to do the Ineos thing or the sky thing is really what we should call it. Cause they haven't done it that much since they've been called Ineos and didn't succeed. And I think that kind of points to the fact that that tactic only actually works. If you also have the strongest rider in the race, right? Which we've always said, and people are always complaining about this in the, you know, 2013 tour, 2014 tour, 2015 tour, not 2014. That would have been nibbly, uh, 2015, 2016. Oh, well, you know, they only won because of the team, right? It was just the team. They just set them up, had an armchair ride to the finish. We've seen what happens now if you don't also have the strongest climber in the race, the strongest time trials in the race, the strongest rider in the race. You get exactly what happened at this Giro, which is some other rider, in this case, Jai Hindley, hangs out at the back of that train until it's time to go and then drops your leader. And then what can you do because you've used everybody up? So we saw sort of the limitations of that tactic, particularly if you're missing key riders like Richie Port. We saw the limitations of that tactic if your key leader is not the strongest bike racer in the race. We actually saw quite a bit of Bahrain Victoria's train this past week, especially on Saturday. They After Ineos had sort of got things back together at the very start, after the crazy fight for the breakaway, Bahrain took control until probably halfway up the Fadaya, the last climb. And it wasn't the first time that week. I mean, I think they hoped that they had the strongest climber by the end. But of course, Lander, although he did eventually overhaul Carapaz on the way to the finish, he couldn't quite match the accelerations. But they did win on they did win the team's classification. So maybe that's what they're all about. All about the team's <laughs> classification, according to uh, according to Movistar, and you know 
who would doubt them. And occasionally, occasionally EF as well. Yeah. Jonathan Vodders once told me that that for some reason, like uh, the higher ups at EF, like the marketing folks at EF, that you know essentially pay their bills really into the team competition. And I, I he. I can't really figure out why. I mean, I guess you get on the podium. Johnny's right, mad about that. He he tweeted that earlier this year after the UAE tour, I think, because they had like three guys in the top ten, and he did a big tweet like, you know, this is this is what we've been doing and training for, and you know, now we get to show everyone. It's just sort of like a a bizarre moment. Is teamwork <laughs> is teamwork one of EF Education's pillars? Uh, oh, uh, probably. probably. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's it. Maybe. <laughs> It's a part of the marketing. I, I I know surprisingly little about EF education, other than the fact that I often run into giant groups of high schoolers wearing EF backpacks in airports. That, oh, really? That happens, <laughs> that happens all the time. <laughs> yeah, usually like on the way to and from. I mean, a lot of them are Americans. I think uh, the way to and from the U.S. So the sort of major American air hubs have a lot of EF backpacks <laughs> floating floating around in them. But other than that, I don't. I would assume that's a pillar. Teamwork tends to be a pillar. It's probably one of our pillars. I think it's probably a cycling tips pillar. Uh, it's funny when you see cycling well, sponsors. I don't in know, the wild. but it sounds like something that <laughs> EF education might uh, first education first teamwork first. I don't know. Nonetheless, Maybe. nonetheless, the team competition is not necessarily what they were probably going for. I don't think. Do we feel sorry for for Ineos and and Carapaz? I mean. Like I said, Carapaz has a Giro already. There's an argument going on in silence over here. I was, <laughs> me and Ronan were just trying to decide who was going to say uh, talk first. Um, I think linking the whole train debate to feeling sorry for Ineos, I think the difference when you see like Bahrain hit the front and sort of lead like lead lead the peloton up a climb, it's not really filled with the same doom. It's more like a haphazard attempt at something than when <laughs> Ineos do it, just because of you know recent history. Um, and like at the start of the Giro, when Richie uh, Richie Port said, "Oh, you know, we're prepared to be boring and bring the train out to win this Giro." Like, if you're gonna like say stuff like that, and like as much, as as good a quote that is, um, if you're gonna say you're gonna try and like sort of um, choke the race into defeat, then if it doesn't work, then it's kind of like, well, thanks for sort of not making the racing as exciting as it could have been, and also you lost, so you know, not much sympathy. From on my part, I think like it only works like you can only walk around like that if you then do win it. But if not, I don't know. I don't think any of anyone else really knew that Carapaz was on a bad day. I read an interview with um, Rod Ellingwood, mm. uh, the Rod Ellingworth mm. um, team president, and uh, apparently Carapaz said after the stage, "Yeah, I don't think I was that great." But during the stage, he was still on the. I think it was just a case of maybe he didn't have his. I don't know, his whoop calibrated properly, uh, but he uh, just uh, <laughs> didn't know that he wasn't going to make it um, until the very last moment. But that's a communication issue, isn't it, Then, if he wasn't? It's also the risk of racing like that, I guess. Like, if you're going to just try and edge it and then not, and not, like, attack and, like, sort of, you know, like how Pogacar does where he's, like, by stage five, it's sort of like, wow, he's already taken out a few minutes. If you're going to really try and take up to the line, then that's the risk. I'm I'm going to come out there and say that I do feel sorry for them, and that of course we would all prefer to see the Ineos of the 2020 Giro when they attacked left, right, and center, won 35 of the 21 stages, and won the pink jersey at the end. But you know, that wasn't their tactic coming in here. But for the what is it, seven or eight, eight riders in the Grand Tour, you know, every one of them put a huge effort into 
all the training before it and the three weeks of racing for the event and they played the card that they thought would work best for them they you know they didn't ride this any austrian to piss me off watching tv they, they did it because they thought that was their best chance of success with the best rider in the race and when it doesn't work out or it you know it falls apart with two kilometers to go on the last meaningful not well the time job was meaningful also but the on the last mountain stage you got to feel it but for the people involved if not for the team i guess i think it probably just ties into the like wider sporting context like like a new england patriots or a manchester united and that you just want to see different characters win and like Jai Hindley winning a, a Giro I think is just a much better story than Richard Carapaz getting a second one I don't know and I think that is part of what is part, part of what I was thinking over the weekend as well is you know how reinvigorated Bora are as a, as a team since Sagan moved on at the end of last season and they sort of it, it's the team looks very yeah the team looks very similar it's got the same sponsor same bike same coloured kit but actually, it's like an entirely different team. They've never won a Grand Tour before. Uh, and, you know, they won several stages in this one and and the overall on the back of what's already been a largely successful season already, I think. I mean, honestly, getting rid of Sagan at, that, at the perfect time, really. Like, I mean, he didn't do anything this spring. He's racing unbound gravel this, this weekend is what he just announced, which is great. I mean, he's doing the 100-mile version, not the 200-mile version. But the the hundred mile is part of his his base training for the Tour de France, I guess. Uh, no, it, it, perfect timing, right? Like, I mean, Sagan was was just king of the roost for so long, right? He, he was he was Matthew Vanderpool eight years ago, five years ago. But uh, time moves on, and the fact that they were able to sort of shed that extremely high wage uh, and pull in a bunch of young exciting riders uh i mean jai henley is is clearly a young exciting rider and i guarantee he was making less money than peter sagan that that like perfect perfect well done perfectly executed sort of strategy from that team to rebuild itself at exactly the right time and we're seeing the results now so they they swapped sagan and his uh entourage let's say all of them are towards the latter end of their career the autumn of their career let's say and in their place, they brought in Sam Bennett, Danny Van Poppel, Alexander Vlasov, Sergio Higuita, Jai Henley, Marco Haller, uh, Ryan Mullen, Shane Archibald, Jonas Koch, and a few few others. Like it's pretty good. It's uh, when when you look at the results that that group of writers has brought in this year, it, you know, and and all all manner of different types of races that they've won. Uh, it eclipses what Sagan has done for most of the past couple of years, I think. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, Bennett will win a stage or two at the Tour de France and if all goes well. Igita can win out of a breakaway in, in lots of different scenarios. They picked up, they picked, it was, it was, like I said, it was cleverly done at exactly the right time. And I think, maybe this is a bit of a transition here. I think that some other teams uh, in our little relegation scrap that we keep talking about essentially didn't do that, right? They They didn't shed some of the older <laughs> what's the price the right way more they, they have too much experience uh they didn't shed some of some of their overly experienced uh riders i'm thinking of of uh teams like israel startup nation and things like that because we're going to step away from the jira just briefly and then come back the relegation 
battle through this Jiro has been quite interesting in that I think Johnny was it you that that pulled up this stat Uno X BNB Arkea and Total Energies all got more points during the Jiro than the four lowest World Tour teams at the Jiro right yeah, they got more than uh, UAE Team Emirates, DSM, EF Education, Easy Post, and Israel Premier Tech, um, just through racing other races while the Giro was on, um, which will count for a lot by the end of the season. But it's, you know, we were discussing it's, it's kind of tough because obviously the Giro is a prestigious event, and EF got a top ten on GC, which is a decent achievement in itself. But it's hard to go for three weeks getting flogged like every day by other teams, knowing that that is a race that deserves your full attention, but then knowing there are more points on offer elsewhere. I mean, is it, is it just show that the, the point system is a little bit broken? I mean, if, if a team can go do that, if a team can go race a bunch of like smaller races with, with fewer big teams where, you, you know, the chances of popping into the top 10 are virtually guaranteed. If you're showing up with a real world tour squad, that versus the Giro, I mean, it it looks a bit broken to me from the outside. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think, I, I think so. Like, but it's tough because would you, it's also whether those World Tour teams, like whether in Israel Premier Tech, would have if they concentrated elsewhere, would they have just still had the riders to win those races against like like RK Samsek who went to Trebolion and got one and three? Like, would would you see Israel doing that with the riders they've got? And maybe I mean Israel. Yeah, Israel sort of a separate that 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 was the the transition off the saga discussion yeah. and into Israel is it's like you know the 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 wage bill over there is is skewed, right? Like they need to start looking younger. They need to start a little bit of a rebuild because building a team around Chris Froome is not the best idea at this point in time. You, you know, all kudos to Chris Froome and the things that he has done in his career. But at this point, strategically, if you're going to be heartless about it, you, you can't do that and expect, expect to get any results. And so, like, they just need to they need to they need to figure that out sooner than later. Isn't that what kind of makes this system fairer as well? Because it's not just about the teams with the biggest money. It's about how they spend it and how clever they are with it. And if they're crap with it, they get relegated. Soz. Yeah, it makes it more like a proper sport, and like then taking like a, a huge gamble on signing Chris Froome becomes just a, a proposition that like yeah he'll get you if you're a new team like Israel where you need the publicity and you need the big riders to sort of establish establish yourself. It works in that respect, but it's good that it becomes more about the sport and not not the marketing and the fluff around it. I guess I think there's some questionable decisions being made at Israel too. You know, the Chris Froome one I can sort of see past because. He's always going to bring so much attention to the squad, but when the when Chris Froome's results aren't forthcoming, and the writer you bring in is Jakob Fuglesang, who is the same mm-hmm. age and clearly passed his best, also, you know that 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 that's a serious question mark for me. Surely that's a, a big money signing. Also, uh, when you look at their Giro squad, uh, squad it was almost entirely built around Giacomo Nizzolo, who is famous for getting second in sprints. <laughs> <laughs> he's had a trillion second places and one win at the Giro. Um, you know, so you're not only are you taking the risk of you know bringing a sprinter to amass most of your points at the Giro in the riskiest you know type of stage finish. You know, there's a high risk there of him crashing out even on the first stage, and the team then being left uh, with you know having to pick up the pieces. 
but also that sprinter isn't like Mark Cavendish or Arno Demar or someone who is, you know, a kid. Um, I can't stop thinking Sean Kelly's way to say Cable Ewan. Uh, cable. <laughs> <laughs> I, can't, I can't think of his name now. Uh, Caleb Ewan. Caleb, Caleb Ewan. Ewan. <laughs> Caleb Ewan. That was incredible. <laughs> That's what three weeks of watching the, the Giro will do to you. Um, you know, I, I just, yeah, I, I think they should have had another strategy up their sleeve for their Giro squad other than just solely focusing on delivering that solo to the line. They have some some interesting young i think they're all aussies i'm looking at the oh maybe there's a key there's two kiwis in there anyway the we're getting a little bit off topic here but more than half of israel's team are over the age of 30 18 of them are over the age of 30 now that's not to say that as soon as you go over the age of 30 you can't race a bike anymore uh that that's certainly not true but a lot of them are up in the 36 35 37 range like i said it just it feels like it's they're just ripe for sort of a i don't know some kind of redo some 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 shuffling of the the riders that they've got and trying to pick up some some young exciting talents to get them some points although by the end of this year maybe it won't matter uh, they're not they're not doing so hot in that this relegation game granted like we said before the points are not the only thing that is going to matter at the end of this year, but, and they've certainly got the cash and things like that. So the finances are, are, are still relevant to this, uh, but it's not looking good for them. Wait, so what, it's not just based on the points. What's, well, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's based, it's based on the points. So long as the likes of the finances and the, um, there, there's, there's a whole, me and Johnny have gone through it a, a couple of weeks ago, but there's a few other factors that any team looking to win the World Tour is more than likely going to hit. So indirectly, it's all about the points, but there's actually... Basically. The, the UCI sets all their standards that World Tour applications must meet. And then if there is, say, two teams looking for the final spot, that's them when the points come into it. Yeah, so 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 if they get... The only, like, Israel Startup Nation's best chance at this point, if they were beneath that relegation line would be that one of the teams above the relegation line didn't meet the financial requirements or other requirements. Uh, and if that was the case, then they would get bumped up. But otherwise, you know, like Alps and Phoenix, all the, like all the ones that are in that space are, are all going to meet those requirements in all likelihood. So, yeah, they, they really need to be above the line. One, one last point on that. I think um, ethical standards is one of the requirements. And I'll just need to check that. But... You could ask a few questions about some of the teams and their sponsors and around that. Uh, but the last point I wanted to make was but just... But we all know that they will not ask those questions. <laughs> so That's the point yeah. I was indirectly making there, yes. Yeah. Uh, the last point, though, there are there is a lot of points on offer between now and the end of the season at, at the Tour and everything. So, you know, we're, we're looking at this week by week, but really, you know, it, it's, it's not like the Premier League or something where if you're 15 points off the... the um, the last place inside the outside of the relegation zone at Christmas, you're more or less getting relegated come May. This could all change very, very quickly the way the UCI points work and the amount of races towards the end of the season. All roads lead to Guangzhou. <laughs> <laughs> the biggest, most important race on the calendar this year. Yes, let's let's return let's return to the Giro. Before I want to talk obviously about Jai Henley. We haven't talked a whole lot about Jai Henley just yet. And like I said, I, I 
I know that Rupert knows him quite well, and I feel an Australian accent talking about Jai Henley would be good. So we'll definitely do that when I, I can chat do with one if you week. want, mate. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, Debbie's back. Uh, no, very, very briefly, very briefly before we get back into real Jiro talk, the Cycling Tips Podcast Fantasy League now has a winner, uh, a late entry, and this is kind of my fault for not locking the league basically at the end somebody entered the league uh and obviously they were playing the whole game so uh, this is not their fault this is not you know we didn't state this in the rules i didn't lock the thing somebody entered rather late i believe at least i haven't seen the name near the top up until quite recently uh chris paul an american with 164 total points is our victor uh, I have no, I don't know how to get in touch with you. <laughs> so you're going to have to get in touch with us. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know if you're a Velo club member, hit me on the Velo club Slack. Otherwise like tweet at me or email me editor at cyclingtips.com. If you are Chris Paul, I don't, I don't recognize that name in second place. We have a Brit super Mac attack been up, up at the top for most of the Giro rounding out the podium. Our Norwegian friend Landsvik uh, with 143 points. So, Chris Paul, you get to write an ad. Well, you don't have to write it if you want to. You just have to give us a topic uh, and we will do an ad. Well, Shoddy will do an ad for you as your as your reward for winning the Cycling Tips Fantasy. As your reward for winning the Cycling Tips Fantasy competition. You just give us a topic. We, we'll take care of the rest of course, we'll be running the fantasy competition again during the Tour de France, and the prize, I think, will be the same. In fact, we might even offer up a free ad read for whoever is leading at each of the rest days, I think could be kind of fun. Will there be a Lantern Rouge competition? We Ooh, could. I'm not I sure what the prize I'm in would be the running for that. <laughs> <laughs> there's, well, there's a bunch of competitions. You can do Lantern Rouge. You can do the Mile Sabla. You can do all sorts of things within our fantasy leagues so chris paul get in touch we'll figure out an ad so if you hear a really random ad sometime in the next couple of weeks on the second this podcast that would be chris paul <laughs> whatever they want to come up with isn't, isn't chris paul an nba player you're asking the wrong american i <laughs> i do not i do not know <laughs> let's get back to the giro uh back to jai hindley what do we know about Jai? Uh, I mean, grew up in Perth, I believe. Uh, Matt Deneef has written a couple different things about him over the last couple of weeks, couple months. There's some good stuff up on the site. I think the kind of the, the the bigger the bigger question for me is: Does this make him? Does this make him a contender for? I would say bigger races, but there's really only one bigger race in my mind. Uh, does this make him a Tour de France contender going forward? I mean, it's still a young guy, and we came into this Giro thinking. You know, his last Giro was a fluke, not a fluke, but it was a, like I said, like we said before, a soft it was a soft start list that year. Not not a soft start list this year. I mean, you know, dropped Landa over and over and over again. Dropped Richard Carapaz in a key moment. Does this make Jai Hindley a a legitimate contender for? Let's not say winning the Tour de France because I think Tadej Pogacar has that somewhat locked up for a couple of years here between him and Roglic and all the rest. 
but being up there, being a podium contender, you know, who in the right circumstances could could conceivably take a yellow jersey. What do we think? Yes, he's a contender for everything for me now. <laughs> he's going to win everything. Amy's all on board. Yeah, yes. same. <laughs> same, purely based on he seems like a real person as well and says stuff like he's not here to put socks on centipedes, which I think is the moment he actually won the Giro. Um, <laughs> and yeah, just it's have more like regular sort of normal seeming people contending Grand Tours gets my full backing every single time. Yeah, and like Renan said, we haven't really, I mean, the first time he really attacked was five kilometres from the top of the last climb of the Giro d'Italia. So we don't really know uh, how good he can be yet. I don't think we, maybe we didn't see all of Jai Hindley at this Giro. I've just had a, I've just had a realisation there in that he's somehow managed to win a hugely exciting race with only attacking once with five kilometres to go on the last climb. It's usually the kind of thing we'd be complaining about because it would be the indication of a dull Giro. But this was anything but dull. And I think, you know, if, if Jai Hindley was to plan a Grand Tour course, this one with two relatively short time trails, both of which had, you know, proper climbs on them. We're not, not mountainous, but the two climbs on, uh, a climb on each of the time trails, it's it's probably the Grand Tour course that is going to suit him best. And, and you know, he, he made the most of that. You know, that's not to take away from what he did at all. But I think we would need to see another course like this for him to contend again. Yeah, I mean, let's not forget that he he did lose time to Carapaz in both of those time trials. And Carapaz absolutely would lose time to the rights of, the likes of, of you know, Primoz Roglic or Tadej Pogacar, right? So we're talking about a significant time trial deficit in all likelihood, at least, at least for now. I mean, you know, he, he could, he could certainly work on that and, and get better at that. But, you know, I think we're talking sort of maybe not quite Roman Bardet uh, level, level time trial, but like not that far off, right. Kind of, kind of a, a traditional, more of a pure climber type of type of individual. And a real key strength that he struck me with for the last three weeks is just consistency. You know, it, it, it didn't look like he had that fragility that you've seen in other you know, climbing specific Grand Tour contenders, if that makes sense. You know, he, he looks like a solid rider. He didn't look like he was ever, you know, he, he wasn't blown hot and cold. He just throughout the race, he looked very, very consistent, very strong. And if anything, you know, got a lot better over the, the course of the three weeks. And of course, you know, we always look at the Tour and who's going to win it. But, you know, the the, the Tour is a, is a beast of a race. And every year we hear of favourites crashing out. If we look back at 2014 now, of course, some of us remember all the favourites who crashed out of that year, but what the history book shows is just that Vincenzo Nibali won. And, you know, more and more that the fact that there was very few riders left standing in that race is forgotten. Uh, and the only thing is remembered is that Nibali won. So, you know, the riders going aiming for a top 10 of the tour could leave it with a win. And there's no reason that, you know, Hindley might not focus on something. He won't be hoping for others to crash, but he'd be going to the tour with big ambitions. And if things fall his way, pardon the pun. You know, it's not inconceivable that he could that he could win a Tour de France. Agreed entirely. Uh, it was something you said a second ago, Ronan. Um, you know that it was a very exciting Giro. Was it a very exciting Giro? I, I, I so this is this. It was an. Int- I had I had a friend text me yesterday after the race finished up and say, "Was it just me, or was that a boring Giro d'Italia?" And I responded with, "No, no, it was it was just you because." The the actual sort of GC narrative of it, the kind of overarching narrative of it, was not particularly 
it didn't change much. Like we were saying, you know, it was one in the final five kilometers of the final climb of, of the, of the race on paper. That's not particularly exciting. And yet this Giro had something interesting basically every single day for three weeks. And I think that's what, that's what made it a good Giro for me is even though the sort of overarching GC narrative was a bit of a slow burn, every single day there was something happening. There were, there were, you know, either crazy breakaways or we're talking about all the, 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 like the lapped, the lap courses. Um, it was day to day, a fantastic Giro. And over the course of three weeks, a less fantastic Giro. It's, it's difficult for me to kind of square in my own head here. Yeah, I've got two thoughts on that. I mean, I think I remember we said, I think, was it on the second rest day or the, if you count the first rest travel day, um, we said the second week's going to be really boring, um, but it wasn't, it was far from it. So I think low expectations, they can only be exceeded. That's a good thing. <laughs> I do think though that there have been um, some particularly exciting and surprising individual stages Um and it's, I, I mean, I like seeing a breakaway win. Yes, this weekend wasn't a blockbuster finale. Um, maybe if they put the Fadaya in the middle of that, uh, the, the, the final climb in the middle of that that final stage, it would have been more fireworks. But it might not, not, might not have been. Um, but yeah, I think, I think it was a good Giro overall. What if we, or can we rate it? We rate it in, in pineapple, I was going to say pineapple <laughs> pizzas out of five. <laughs> how many, how many, do we give it, do we give it uh, our, 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 Friend of the podcast, friend of a lot of us, uh, Daniel Freeb over at um, over at the Cycling Podcast, rates it out of. I think he rates the Giro out of wine. What does he rate the Giro? It's a vintage, the wine wine. vintage. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, we don't need to steal that. We can we can rate out of pineapple pizzas because we're going to talk about Vanderpool being a meme in a second. So, how many pineapple pizzas out of five do we give this Giro d'Italia? Everyone was looking very. I, w- I wish our listeners could see the faces right now because everybody's got the sort of like hand on chin, <laughs> unsure about what's happening. Like it's the most Almost. important decision of our lives that we get yeah. the exact right number. Well, I want um, to say yes. five because I predicted the winner. So, <laughs> so Amy's Jiro was five pineapple pizzas out of five. Ronan? I, I will give it four pineapple pizzas out of five. and. I think you have to look at the thing as a whole. We we literally cannot have a 21-day race where there's GC action every day. But what the Giro organizers did this year was they somehow managed to space the GC deciding days across the three weeks. Uh, also attract a start list, which ended up with three riders very closely matched, which is luck of the draw kind of thing, really, for the organizers. But then they you know sort of sprinkled that pineapple pizza with, I don't know, some sort of fancy cheese uh, throughout <laughs> throughout the three weeks with these circuit uh, circuits that we've seen on two different stages with the shorter stage with um, you know again just the the fact that there were so many days where it could have been a boring bunch sprint day where the brake controlled the the bunch controlled the brake but instead it turned out to be a day where the brake upset the bunch or you know a breakaway fought out for a victory when it could have been a GC there was something exciting about every stage where you know it wasn't just a procession to the funny thing except that one stage six like but the rest of it i thought as a whole there was there was something interesting about every day it might not have been gc every day it might not have been individual stage one every day but there was something interesting about every stage which uh i'm, I'm the only reason i'm not giving it a five is because it seems like that's just you know uh five being, has to be something too, really special 
Mm. Yeah. yeah. Like predicting yeah. the winner. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I would go I'd go three point five because I feel there could be more like battles. That sounds like a really weird way to phrase it, but like Binyam Gamai leaving early ruined like a story developing with Vanderpoel. If Roman Bardet had stayed in the race, I think that would have really added like something that was missing. Um, but I also want to like decrease like sort of a grade inflation to like how we rate all these things. Like I think 3.5 is fair. And yeah, like Ronan said, I think you judge the story when you've got to the finish. I do think that even though we had to wait right until like the last page, it was, it was like a, it was tied with like a neat bow and an overall good story. We all think of Pogaccia's first tour as like one of the great tours yeah. because it was won on the second no. last day. But actually, as a whole, it, it certainly wasn't as exciting yeah. as this Giro was. I'm kind of kind of reminded of a sketch by an Irish uh, comedian, Tommy Tiernan, and he he jokes about the DJ has to keep us all under control at a like at a nightclub or something <laughs> because if we just keep getting more and more and more and more yeah. and more excited and built up and built up and built up. Will eventually be like the doors and break on through the other side, and then mm. God knows what might happen. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we All need tours something. can't be bangers. Is that yeah. What you're yeah, that that Pogacar tour. There was like um, one of the early mountain stages where Lutsenko won it, and it was like it was so turgid to watch. And there were like there were a number of days like that where like you'd, it, it was often when they had a long transfer, and you'd be like you'd be questioning like what are we all doing here? Um, so yeah, I agree with that point. We got yelled at by the internet because we called a couple stages boring on the podcast. And I have since learned my lesson. <laughs> Nothing is boring at a grand tour. No. We just have to, we have to find the interest. But yeah, we were. Okay, that one. But that one, that, that Lusenko one was really. It was boring. But that was when it had also been, that had been when it had been built up so much. I think that is the, like the point Kit made. Like, I think everyone's got a moral responsibility to, to remember that 200 kilometers of riding a bike shouldn't be like back to back action. Before yep. we get Kit's rating, I, I need one clarification. What size of pizzas are we talking about here? Uh, like your traditional <laughs> Italian, like Hawaiian pizza. You can, <laughs> like you can eat the whole thing on your own if you're really hungry. Okay, I'll stick with four then. Okay. Like 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 Napoli like Napoli style. Yeah. Pineapple pizza. Pineapple pizza. Traditional. <laughs> You might have to bring your own pineapple if you're going to Naples. And, yeah, and do you see the Giro d'Italia put on their social media, that they yeah. put a bunch of their social media team, but they had to use tin pineapples for some of them. Yeah, that's gross. <laughs> Kate, yeah. what's your score? Yeah, my, so I was toying between 3.5 and 4, um, but I'm going to go for 4 because I'm just thinking back to because although this weekend was, I mean, it was quite nice to for, to report on, although those five, last five kilometres on Saturday were incredibly stressful. Um but, um, yeah, there have been times in this past three weeks and I've been pleasantly surprised and more excited about it than I expected to be. So I'm going to, I'll give it a four. So we've got four, three and a half, four, five, but that's, uh, maybe we just removed it. <laughs> <laughs> Amy's. Amy's personal five, <laughs> as opposed to a uh, an applied five. I'm gonna five give it a vibes. five for five. Five for I, I, five. Hey, hey, that 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 bumps the average up. I'm gonna give it a, a three and a half, uh, which is a good. Just to be clear, is a really good grand tour. Uh, we've had some grand tours over the last couple of years that that were in the like one and a half to two range, and so three and a half is is really quite good. You know, in my mind, in my mind, w- when you're talking fives you're you know 
once in a lifetime, once every 30, 40 years, kind of thing like that, that kind of excellence. Just so you have an idea of scale. Yeah. So I think three and a half is three and a half is pretty solid. One of the things that I use to, to kind of determine how interesting I think the overall race is, is I think back on the number of stages where you could have, you know, we, 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 we tend to write these little, these little, they're not sort of actually race reports. They're basically race report esque after each one of these stages, right? Uh, Kit, you do them on the weekends, Johnny, myself, Dane previously, uh, were doing them during the week. And the number of those that you could essentially pre-write and get pretty much correct, like, you know, you want to hit publish as close to the finish as possible, right? So you're sitting there and you're, you're typing, 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 typing. And if you can basically not change anything with like a half hour to go and then hit publish with as soon as you get a photo of the, of the winner, that to me is not a good stage generally. Uh, and there were very few of those in this particular Jira, whereas we've had quite a lot of those in, in some recent Grand Tours. And so, yeah, I think three, 3.5 for me is a good, is a good number. I think now, you could just, probably add on half a point if you're in a different time zone and you've seen the start of so many of the stages with the epic fight to get in the breakaway. Because that, was, that was quite interesting some days. True. I always miss that because it is at, at three in the morning, three in the morning for me. So we got a five, we got a four, we got a 3.5 and a 3.5. What did I miss? One oh, more four it and no, a four. Mine was a four, yeah. So we averaged a f- we averaged exactly four. Yeah, 20 points, nice. five of us. The official Cycling Tips podcast number is How a many four. slices in Which is picture? a <laughs> In true, really in true <laughs> Napolitano style, uh, they don't cut it for you, Ronan. Oh, okay. Yeah, they don't do that. I'll, yeah, shove your dominoes, mate. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we have a couple more things to talk about before we wrap up today. One, very briefly, uh, we wanted to give a quick shout out to Matthew Vanderpool because you know, you know, I mentioned uh, twenty minutes ago or so that you know this was this was Peter Sagan's role for a long time to be sort of the interesting classic sprint all sorts of things guy. And Wolf and Art has done it to some extent over the last couple of years, but Matthew Vanderpool added another layer this year. Uh, he became a meme. Explain this to me. Johnny, Amy, you're both sticking hands up. Explain this to me. <laughs> I was just going to make Not- a sulky comment about whether Peter Sagan has pineapple on his pizza. We want to know. <laughs> <laughs> but it could Johnny, be a team thing th- because I know of at least one other Alperson Phoenix writer who shall remain anonymous for his own safety. We also <laughs> like pineapple on pizza. <laughs> ah, good to know. Good to know. Johnny, talk to me about Matthew Vanderpool. <laughs> Firstly, I think Pierre Sagan has much worse things on his pizza, and I don't know why. <laughs> Just the vibe I get. <laughs> like real things that don't belong there. Um, yeah, Vanderpool with the whole... He was it was just fun. It was it was great to watch him. Like sometimes those um those really big, like larger than life riders in terms of what they do on a bike kind of get lost within all of the the trappings of fame and success and don't really end up being like not not real people, because obviously they are real people, but like they they don't they don't have a personality anymore because it's all about winning and training and being perfect athletes. But throughout this Giro, I mean maybe it's just a testament to his talent when he's Doing like a thirty-second wheelie up um, a ridiculous, ridiculously hard climb, um, 
But he, he lent into the whole sort of ketchup on spaghetti, pineapple on pizza thing. Kind of, he's not he's not necessarily the funniest guy in terms of when you actually ask him like something humorous in an interview. Like that's because he's so gets so bogged down with people asking him, "Are you going to go for the GC at the Tour de France?" At which point he's just like, "What what am I doing here?" Um, but yeah, he was t- he was like grabbing people's selfie selfie sticks on that stage twenty as he went up the climb. He was there was something with a big flag I saw. He was like high fiving people. He just became sort of everything that Peter Sagan previously was to like the internet side of following cycling. And he also won a stage, wore the pink jersey, and won the Super Combativity Prize. So in terms of like a haul from a Grand Tour, he sort of won a lot of the race, and then also as Amy would say, sort of got a five out of five on the vibe check. So Absolutely. Impeccable so vibe. Pretty good. And all the, the variety of stages as well that he was trying to get up the road. That, uh, I should have checked which stage it was. But when, when he went on one of the mountain stages in the last week when the breakaway won, and he was leading the race for uh, not very long, and then he went, then he popped spectacularly. But it, it was just kind of, you know, and then the following day he tries to get in the breakaway again. Um, he just can't stop. He's the Duracell bunny. It's like when, on, on Sunday you hear the commentators saying, well, you know, this ex has had a really tough few days being a domestique for uh, Carapaz or uh, what have you. But then they come to Matty van der Poel and it doesn't matter that he's been in the breakaway for 30 stages. He's going to do well. And he did. Um, yeah, he's it's, it's just a really great person to watch riding a bike. So his his Giro, this is, this is a, I think, a perfect example. So he won stage one, obviously. Uh, he was also in the breakaway on stage eight, stage 12, stage 15, stage 17 and stage 20. He was on, he was in the break on Saturday. So as many kilometers in the break as almost any other rider, as many kilometers in the break as, as some of the drone hopper guys that get sent into, (laughs) into the suicide moves. Right. And he just went for it every single day. I, I, yeah, that combination of that combination of, just world beating talent, right? And, and exceptional physical ability and exciting of physical ability with some semblance of personality is not something that we get all that often. And I think that the Peter Sagan comparison is, is maybe even not even that apt. I mean, Sagan is, is he was interesting, but that, that, well, so, so that, that, um, that personality was somewhat, created i would say it was it was a you know it was professionally done essentially i mean if you think about like the grease video and all the rest and you know he was he was quite funny at times uh often just simply due to to not having a fantastic grasp of english for quite a lot of his early career vanderpool feels more a little bit more genuine uh and maybe that just helps because he is fluent in English, like completely fluent in English relative to Sagan, particularly, like I said, in, in his early career when pulling English quotes out of him was like pulling teeth. Uh, but it does, if it, if anything, Vanderpool feels more, it feels like it's more just him, right? He's willing to, he can take a joke. He's willing to go with it. He's willing to go with the pineapple thing. He's willing to go with the, with the ketchup thing. That's a little bit rare. I think in athletes of that, of that caliber generally because athletes of that caliber often have a certain type of personality that, that just doesn't line up with being kind of a goofball. Also like these consistent, like getting the breakaway on 
stage away is probably not going to win is just it's so like uncalculated compared to how everything else is supposed to happen and then even after that stage 20 breakaway and then he finishes third in the time trial it's it's like it's like you're getting someone who doesn't really know how all this sport normally works to sort of just figure out what actually would happen and like oh well if he's that good then he'll win this day and he could win that day but he he kind of does do that he doesn't fit he doesn't fit the mold in any way that a cyclist should which seems a bit superlative but this year he kind of did he did do that but Tadej Pogacar is the same he doesn't really work yeah. with the old model does he um, so <laughs> and he loves a meme have you ever checked yeah. out the fault that the, so you can you can go to Tadej Pogacar's Instagram account and look at the accounts that he follows he follows weird stuff like, uh, this, really? I literally have I can't believe you just said that that was literally I've, that's an idea I've got written down for like before the tour there's I, there's I one was, that's chaotic nightclub photos which is yeah. one of the best accounts I, I I was talking about this with with some folks at the Tour de France last year and like trying to talk about who this kid was Now, for me it's like I don't know I'm 33 now I don't feel particularly old but I'm way older than Tadej Pogacar <laughs> And it's like, it's, there's like a generational thing, right? Where he, he's, he's, he's of that generation that literally just grew up with it, with, with a cell phone and, and with the internet. And like, I remember AOL, he does not. Uh, and it's, and it's, and it's a, just a very different. So I was trying to explain, I was, I was actually specifically chatting about this with Richard Moore uh, at, at the cycling podcast and trying to explain my reading of this kid and how like, he loves a good meme. Like I'm, I'm still not convinced that he doesn't have a secret meme account and make memes. I think he, I think he might and does. And I would like to find, I would like to find out if we can confirm this because, because well, I've well, heard it from a couple of different folks who are like in group chats with him who say, yeah, he's like, he makes, he makes like raunchy cycling memes. <laughs> There is there, there's troll cyclist on Instagram who is Slovenian, but will but not confirm it, to anyone who he who like what more than that. I don't think that's Tade though. I don't think that's Tade. how do we know? Do we? Oh, I, we don't want to start rumors <laughs> here. I'm just saying that kid likes a meme. That's all. That's all I'm saying. And 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 Vanderpol is I guess in the sort of the upper end of that of that same generation. But it's it's something that again like. I'm not that much older, but it's it is a little it, it's it's a difference between the young millennials and and the Gen Z, I guess. It's a, a, a different uh, approach to the internet, basically. Can I just add in a bit of balance here and say that yes, it is great to see him attacking the left, right, and center. But actually, if you compare him to Pogacha, Pogacha is a heck of a lot more clinical and, as such, a lot more successful. Um, I would say. Uh, they're you know they're both massively talented. Could win races left, right, and center. But you know as great as as it is to see Pogaccio on the attack on high mountain stages, he left this Giro with one stage one, which is great. But I can't help but think how many he should have had had he used his legs more wisely. And I've been saying it throughout the three weeks, and I'll maybe get a lot of hatred for saying this, but he's a professional cyclist. Has you know it, part of <laughs> at least part of his job is winning bike races, not just entertaining us. He was second. He was second uh, and then one time drawn, third two, and one time drawn. Like it's phenomenal, but... Yeah. Well, and he was second, you know, uh, second behind Benyam Gramai. Yeah. <laughs> but most, I'm, I'm looking through his, his... Most of the time when he ended up in those breakaways, he exploded spectacularly. I, I mean, 
you know, stage 20, he, he dropped to 61st stage 17, 12th. That's okay. Stage, uh, 15, 46th stage, 12, 20th. So yeah, it, it could have been a little bit more calculated. I think. Was he on a training camp for the Tour de France? Maybe he's never done. He's never done the third week of Tour de France before. He says he's going to the Tour de France. Um, he's missing the Dutch national championships to prepare at altitude. Maybe I don't know. Yeah, I, I mean, it, I, I agree with Ronan because it kind of flies in the face of what he's said before about only turning up to races that he knows he can win. Um, during the spring, for instance, I mean, he's actually raced very little this year compared to a lot of people at the Giro. I think um, he, after I, his injury, I think he just really wanted a high mountain stage one to kind of like level up with Boyd Van Aert. Ah, interesting. <laughs> yeah. And that he was doing everything he could well. to get it. <laughs> All right, that's enough. That's enough fender pole and memes and Pogacar and Giro. And we've talked about it all. It was four pineapple pizzas out of five. Congratulations to the Giro. Uh, that's a good score. It's a very good score. Amy, you guys recorded a freewheeling this morning, touched on Ride London and a whole bunch of other races that are happening. Can you, can you give me a quick synopsis and we can send some people over there? Yeah, I mean, Ride London was a pretty straightforward race. Lorena Weavers won all three stages and then the GC. Um, there was no coverage of the first two stages. Um, and so, and only, yeah, the last stage around London was covered live. So we delved into that. Is that the past tense? We delve into that on the podcast. Um, and yeah, kind of just, yeah, shred that a bit because it need, deserves it. And uh, then we talked about how good it was that Turingen as a uh, point pro, is that how you say that? Um, had like two hours of live coverage every day and like a really good race. So yeah, plus like great vibes as I've mentioned. <laughs> Excellent vibes over on Freewheeling. The best. Yes, absolutely. Go check out this week's episode of Freewheeling for all the chat and discussion and vibes that you could possibly ever want. Ronan, <laughs> last but not least today, uh, you were you just dinging a bell right there. Uh, what are what what's today's nerd nugget? We have a very short nerd nugget it's, for everybody. It's not today. a real, it's not a full blown nerd nugget. So rather than the siren, we're just going to use the bell today. <laughs> uh, but uh, just because we were talked about the Giro so much, quick nerd nugget uh, and kind of a plug for my for my for myself to check out uh, my straight saddle tool that I posted on Instagram last night, which is basically using a bike stand and a laser level to check that my saddle was straight because apparently my eyes can't do that <laughs> despite the fact that they should be able to do. And we've it, we've heard so much talk down through the years about we need a tool for getting our saddle straight or our handlebars straight or you know this, that and the other. And actually just uh, hanging a laser level uh, is the easiest way to, and quickest and probably cheapest way to check that your saddle is straight. So just a... For anybody who's struggling to straighten up their saddle or straighten up their stem alignment with the front wheel, uh, head over to my own Instagram and <laughs> check out what I what I spent my Sunday evening doing. <laughs> there you go. Today today's mini mini nerd nugget, and that is where we're going to wrap things up for today. Like I said, go check out this week's freewheeling. We've got a nerd nugget. Nerd nugget. We've got a nerd alert. Coming up as well, and we'll be back like the news podcast next week. 
possible special episode. I'm not exactly sure when it will release, but like I said, there will be a special episode with Rupert about Race Across America and the Tour de France and Jai Hindley and all things Australian and Rupe-ish sometime soon. But I don't want to I don't want to put a date on it. We'll figure that out. At the very latest, we'll be back next Monday. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye-bye.